If you have your Bible, we're in 1 John. We're, uh, we're getting close. Okay? Actually, next week is our last week of this series called Vital Signs. Okay? These are evidences or proof um, of, of a, a Christian's life in Christ. And, and John, uh, actually we're going to look really closely at why he writes this letter because he actually kind of shifts gears and, and focuses on a really, uh, a really cool reason why he uh, spends the last several verses the way he does. Uh, so what we've been talking about and what we're going to talk about the last two weeks is, is a really cool kind of combination. Um, and so if you're in chapter 5 and you're, you're turning to verse 13, we've, already, we've come all the way through the book, and here we come very naturally to what we've been reading all throughout the series, right? This is his title verse, his, his theme verse, his banner verse, uh, and this is going to kind of be the, the crux on which we, we kind of turn and, and focus on, like I said, what he's about to uh, shift gears too. So uh, if you have your Bible, let's read First John 5.13. <clears throat> it says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know, right? Know has been a key word, that you may know that you have eternal life. Uh, but it's interesting here to note, uh, because as you might know, John's uh, letter to these churches, his first epistle, there's 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. These epistles, letters to churches, they aren't his first work. They aren't his first writing inspired by the Holy Spirit. He actually was inspired by the Spirit to, uh, to record an account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We call that a gospel, right? So there's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and those are the synoptics. They have a lot more in common. Then you have John, uh, who also writes a gospel him himself, and he tells us why he writes the gospel, and the reason he writes the gospel, and then the reason he writes this epistle is really interesting interesting to kind of put side by side, and we're, we're, we're told, he tells us in John chapter 20, verse 31, he says, this is his, his gospel again, these things are written <clears throat> so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing that you may have life in his name. It's a little more evangelistic, right? He's, he's writing to make believers that upon reading the story of Jesus for maybe the first time, hearing it taught or, or read, that they would become believers, and then again we read um, in First John, his epistle is a little more about assuring believers, not making them, but assuring them, because again, remember, he's writing to believers that they may know they have eternal life, right? This has been the study for, I don't know, we don't really keep count, six, seven, eight, nine weeks, uh, and, and this has been our experience, right? As we've seen these vital signs at work and true in our life, we are assured. We are, we are further made confident that, yes, we are in Christ. Yes, we are a Christian. And those little benchmarks along the way, right, uh, are encouraging. For, especially, you can imagine, if not only for us, but especially for the first church. So this is old hat maybe for us. We have, we have decades and decades of, of not just uh, access to the Bible, but teaching and and, and people's experiences to kind of know, yeah, this, we, we've, we've already kind of sunk into concrete and it's settled what a Christian ought to look like in Scripture. But when this is first being written, they're kind of reading this, as you can imagine, kind of going, okay, good. I've got that. I've got that. <laughs> I've got that. We, we've talked about things like sensitivity to sin and uh, obedience and, and certainly a desire for full obedience like we've talked about. We've, we've got discernment. Uh, the ability to know the difference between uh, the spirit of error and the spirit of truth, like that's important, and the Holy Spirit does that in a Christian. Uh, we, we have the love of God, as Dave has taught on about 12 different times from every possible angle. This is the God kind of love, and we have that kind of love for God and, and even for one another here, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, even as we read the rest of Scripture, even, even the world. Like We love differently. And so for John's audience, for us, as we've read this, I don't know about you, but as we've read this, it causes some really good either questions that might point us to Jesus for the very first time, 
which is, by the way, the most pastoral, loving thing this book could ever accomplish, or for us believers, it, it, it sinks our confidence further in Christ. Nonetheless, that is a hope of eternal life, right? That we may know we have eternal life. Verse 13 and everything before has said, these things support your confidence. They buttress up and hold up your confidence that if you had any doubt now, you are in fact in Christ. Therefore, you have this future hope of eternal life. Now watch what he does in the last uh, several verses of this book. He's going to shift gears and explain three things that we have confidence in in this life. And so today we're going to take, at the first, take a look at the first confidence. So he's basically saying, if everything up to chapter 5, verse 12 is true of you, if you are in fact, if, if you have these vital signs, one commentator called them birthmarks. I love that. If you have these birthmarks, if you have these vital signs, these evidences, you are then in Christ. And if you are in Christ, then here are three things. And, and we're going to talk about the first one this morning, but to give you kind of a, a teaser for the rest of the chapter and then the... the uh, the sermon next week, John talks about our confidence in prayer. That's going to be exciting to look at this morning. He basically says he hears and he answers us. Uh, we have a confidence in obedience in this life. Until the day we die or Jesus comes back, we meet him in the air. However that whole thing works out, we have a confidence that the Holy Spirit keeps us. Uh, John literally goes into it again. Those born of God do not go on sinning. And then another uh, side to the same coin that we're about to read a confidence in obedience is that we're protected from the evil one, right? He wants to distract us and, 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 and uh, tempt us, and we're told, yet again, that we have protection in this life to obey Christ. That's exciting. The last thing that John uh, will finish the book with is, so we have confidence of prayer, obedience, and then he finishes us, assuring us that we are worshiping the right one. That's important, right? Like we're not, these aren't wasted hours and minutes in devotion and affection. We are worshiping the one true God. And he says, the true son of God has come. And John says, you know that. And so you now have confidence in prayer that he hears. And when he hear, hears according to his will, he answers. You have confidence in obedience as we're about to see during this life. Not just eternal life. That's great. But what grace, right? To give us confidences, certainties in this life in prayer, in obedience. And as we'll see at the last of the book, in worship. Um, so if you want to read on, let's, let's cover kind of the bulk. This will be more of like a walking commentary through the last several verses. So we've read verse 13. Let's read verses 14 through 17. This is kind of the, the meat of it here this morning. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything, will you say anything with me? One, two, three. Anything, anything according to his will. Now we have to say that out loud too. Ready? According to his will. That's the last you'll do. Great job. He will hear, or he hears us. Verse 15. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Whoa. My wife and I, Ryan, uh, who is our worship leader, uh, we're not pet lovers, all right? Now, if you know us well, and you've like had us babysit your dog or your cat, you know that, and we've done it because we love you. Um, but we're not pet lovers, all right? And that, that's, we, we make that pretty obvious so that people don't ask us. Just kidding. Well, I guess it does kind of accomplish that, though. But we're not pet lovers. However, we have owned a black lab named Lily for about six and a half years. And you go, how does that work? You, you, you don't love pets, but you've had a dog for, it's still alive, and, and it still wags its tail on, on occasion. And, like, how is that possible? And I would credit that to the power of prayer. See, what had happened was, 
Six and a half, seven years ago, Graham's in the back seat. I think we're in Fina. We're about to live in Edmond or Oklahoma sometime. This is like another life ago, it feels like. And Graham's mumbling in the back seat. And Graham looked, or Ryan, driving the car. I wasn't there. Um, and Ryan looks in the, the rear view mirror into the back seat and says, Graham, what are you talking about? Who are you talking to? Just heard him mumbling. And he says, oh, nothing. I'm just asking God to give us a dog. And we're going, oh, man. Like, what a sucker punch. What a sucker punch. And so what, what choice do we have as Christian parents trying to teach the power and the confidence of prayer to our kids? We have to buy this kid a dog. Otherwise, he's going to doubt prayer the rest of his life. He's not going to believe that God hears them or that God cares. And so literally, as pet, not, not haters, but non-pet lovers, we literally, we were at a rock and a hard place, right? You don't get the dog and you disappoint the kid and disappoint the kid. Maybe he doesn't walk with Jesus one day. It's going, man. And that's a joke because could we possibly have had that effect, trusting God, dot, dot, dot. But we, we sense that, right? We all want to have a confidence in prayer. Uh, and therefore, as parents, most of the good things we want for ourselves, we want for our kids. And so we had an opportunity, and this is not why we bought the dog, but we sense this, right? We, we also want uh, our, our kids to have a confidence in prayer. Uh, many believers lack the confidence uh, that Jesus himself gives. So John being a, an authority on the issue is, is, is a big deal, right? Ultimately, Scripture is written by the Holy Spirit, inspired by him. But there is something special when the Son of God shows on the scene and not being necessarily uh, drawn despite himself by the Holy Spirit to write, but being God in and of himself whenever he gives us, and he's about to do way more than John just did in a sense. But there's many Christians, despite what even Jesus promises, that lack a confidence in prayer. Uh, one theologian says this, there are many Christians, I think, who have to complain of this or like this, that they pray not so much because it is a blessed thing to be allowed to draw near to God, like we read, but because they feel they must pray, because it is their duty to pray, because they feel that if they do not, they would lose one of the sure evidences of being a Christian. And what we just read and what we're going to see throughout Scripture is that prayer isn't necessarily an evidence of a Christian as much as confidence in prayer. Confidence that, that, that while we, we and, and, and it takes understanding what Scripture promises us and then then cashing in on that in a proper way, a God-centered way with all the freedoms that John and, as we're going to see, Paul and Christ himself offers us. And so this passage offers Graham way more confidence in prayer than buying him a dog ever could. It offers us a confidence in prayer that you and I could never uh, man-make or, or overhear someone else's prayer and then in, in some backwards attempt to convince them of the faithfulness and power of God, we buy the thing and put it on their doorstep that they just prayed for. No, no, no. This, this is straight from Scripture from God himself giving us all the confidence in prayer during this life is that we could ever want. I, you look at verse 14, that word confidence, it literally means freedom of speech. Chew on that a little bit. The word toward him, it means face to face or in his presence or in his midst. It's not just aiming at him. That, that's good enough. It's not just a confidence that, that we're aiming his direction. It's a confidence. It's a freedom of speech in his presence. Which makes me think of the great high priest, Christ himself, and I think of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4, let us then with all confidence draw near to the throne of God that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. Prayer might just be one of the most underrated, un misunderstood aspect of our spiritual life. 
And one of the reasons is, just personally, I struggle with point two that we'll talk about this morning. And I think there's no one passage on prayer that really does the whole job. And what I mean is, is Christ's Lord's prayer sufficient? Absolutely. We just have to see where else the Holy Spirit spoke and put it over here and grab this truth over here and put it here. And we end up backing up and seeing this mosaic of prayer. Then we finally go, oh, So we're going to be here for about five and a half hours this morning to do that. Now, what's interesting is John, in the middle of this epistle to assure believers, he just throws prayer into the middle and and tells me to spend 35, 40 minutes on it. I'm going, how in the world is this possible? So the focus this morning is on the Christian's confidence in prayer. The Christian's confidence in prayer. No one gave away the farm, so to speak, in regards to prayer more than Jesus. Um, And I trust as we read these next string of verses that you'll notice the conditions, that that not just everyone has this access to God. Only believers have this access to God. Um, And so it's interesting that we're taking the Lord's Supper um, and and the the, the festival uh, that that was being celebrated and the Passover going on and and all the things that made this such a sacred, powerful symbol. Because in the the context or that part of that scene, if you put that scene kind of in your mind and Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples... Right? They're going to spend several hours together upstairs somewhere. And before Judas and the guards show up, we, we think, right, they're already out of that room and they're headed to the garden. Right, That's where Jesus prays and that's where he's, he's illegally seized and illegally tried. And, and by, by noon the next day, right, he's on a cross. So these, if you back up back to this scene, these are literally some of the last hours, if not the last hours with his disciples to teach. And, these, and this is... Uh, a pretty phenomenal emphasis on, on prayer. So what we're about to read are one, two, three, four uh, passages from, if you look at John 13 through 17, that's pretty much the account of all Jesus taught in that upper room, all right? And so we're going to see four different times. Maybe they're minutes apart, maybe they're hours apart, and, 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 and notice the emphasis on prayer and our access to prayer. And by the way, these are not suggestions. In the Greek, they're written as imperatives. These are commands. Not you can pray, just know that. No, no, no. Pray to me. And this is how Jesus spoke to them. We'll start in John 14. And again, you can't help but notice the conditions, the the character of the prayer that grants us this access. John 14, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, but with uh, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That's a reason. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Interesting how he kind of clarifies with this. You'll notice that all throughout here. John 15. If you abide in me, if, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified. There's that reason again, that you may bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. We can't just stop reading there because it's not all he said. Listen to the conditions of such access. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, that's how you abide in my love. And go to the very first of that verse again. Now if you abide in my love and my words abide in you, then you have complete access. It's a blank check, but it has a condition, doesn't it? That we be believers bearing fruit. Okay, minutes or hours later, John 15, uh, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, and so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. 
These things I command you so that you will then love one another. Isn't that interesting? John 16, minutes or hours later, in that day you will ask, and when Jesus returns, in that day you will ask nothing of me because I'll be with you. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now, while I'm still with you, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy, there's another reason, that your joy may be full. So it's about God's glory. That's why he, he does this. He promises this. And then just a little peek behind the curtain into the heart of God. It's also for, or it's for his glory and it's also for our, our joy. Guys, this is powerful stuff. This is massive. Whatever we ask, he hears. And John doesn't stop. He says, and if he hears, he answers. If it's according to his will. And then, uh, again, kind of walking commentary style, we get to the next verse. In verse 16, then, uh, he doesn't leave us hanging on the whole God's will piece. Not totally, anyways. We will need the rest of Scripture to kind of pull it in and, and support this. But they're like tiny little diving boards from which we dive into oceans of supporting texts. Okay? So tiny little diving boards here that give us an indication of what it is that God's will is like that are very well and easily supported by the rest of Scripture. So two, indica two indicators just to be looking for, and then we'll read this. Uh, I believe he's saying that God's will is spiritual and God's will is sovereign. God's will is spiritual and God's will is sovereign. Any prayers according to the spiritual goal of the, of the Christian life and any prayers according to God's sovereign will are not just heard, but if heard, answer. So the first thing we see in verse 16, God's will is spiritual, God's spiritual will. It says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, this is a, an example of prayer. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him, his sinning brother, life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. He's clarifying. Then he says this, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. The emphasis, the emphasis on uh, verse 16a, the first part of verse 16 is on, and I wrote this down and follow me with this, the, the sin that does not lead to death. The emphasis here is on a brother, a fellow believer, committing a sin for which he will not be condemned spiritually, for which he will also not be punished physically. Can God punish a believer physically? And then it ends in physical death, and we have scripture that tells us that has happened. We'll talk about that in a minute. The emphasis right now here is on the brother who is sinning a sin that does not lead to death. Is there any condemnation in Christ? The answer is no. So for a, a Christian to, to suffer eternally, spiritually because of a sin, we trust God that a believer doesn't go on sinning, and, and we trust God that that is a sin that if fellow believer steps into, he will respond correctly and humbly. And Paul's saying, that's who you might pray for. And this is the extent of such spiritual prayer that you can I can, in my prayer, have some sort of effect inside the sovereign will of God that brings my brother strength and possibly to a place of repentance from which he finds forgiveness from God. That's, that's powerful prayer. This is a very spiritual request, maybe a, a far cry from what our prayer times are often filled with. Not only is it spiritual in the sense that it accomplishes spiritual things, but it's, it's selfless too. It's about someone else's. I think John is drawing a boundary over here. Your prayer, 
can even accomplish the spiritual restoration of a fellow sinning brother. John illustrates the bounds of this prayer promise, even the spiritual restoration of another person. And so here we look to other places in Scripture and support this idea that, that the Lord's ear is bent towards spiritual prayers. And we look really no further than uh, Jesus himself. In Matthew 6, uh, he says this, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. Now, prayer isn't mentioned, but what else do we go to prayer other than with what we are anxious about? What else is represented to, to God in prayer other than what we are burdened with or what we desire most in, in this verse, what we're seeking? If you're not praying those things to begin with, then you're probably not praying at all. And so if those things make up our prayer, that prayer is, is not spiritual. It forces us, this spiritual will of God, peace, it forces us to ask the question, what is the focus of my prayer? Doesn't it? What is the focus of my prayer? Listen to how Paul prays. 2 Thessalonians 1, 11, it says, To this end, we also pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a powerful prayer. By the way, Paul had plenty other circumstantial things, many other circumstantial things to pray for this church and every first church, suffering with, uh, in, in many cases, at a certain point in the first century, the, the, the climax of, of physical death and persecution, much less the, the social persecution and limitation that resulted almost immediately after Pentecost and churches started meeting. Plenty of circumstantial things, but yet he prays for very spiritual things. Now listen to how Paul asks for prayer. At the same time, pray also for us. This is in Colossians 2. That God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may be clear which is how I ought to be. Hold on, you forgot the part that you're in shackles right now. Like, was that, like, you thumb through, was that at the beginning of his prayer? It's not in his prayer, guys. It's not, it's not a concern of his. If he's there, he, he believes that it's, that it's a circumstantial step or, or aspect of God's sovereign will. And Paul might have had a bad day, and he's going, Lord, hey, I don't enjoy prison. And the Lord would probably say, and I think Paul would go, okay. The Lord probably said, noted, you're in prison. Didn't know that. Okay. I might need to do something about that, except for Paul knew we could argue with, with regard to every other prayer that he prays in Scripture. Paul's going, you know what? And, and not only that, even directly to the point, Paul thinks and believes he's in jail because of the Lord. Not, not just for the Lord, but because of the Lord. There's things that he could do only from prison. There's an encouragement he can be to the church only from prison. So his prayers aren't first, get me out of here. Break me out of here. It's going, no, no, no. I, when you pray for us, pray for opportunity to preach the gospel. That's a spiritual prayer. We pray for prayers of opportunity here uh, for the gospel. Worthiness toward Christ based on the, the way we live our everyday lives. That God look down and say, that's obedient. That makes me proud. I'm honored by that. 
prayers for usefulness, not, not just that we would be fulfilled or, or, or prayers for fulfillment, not just us, but like he says, fulfillment, um, uh, fulfilling every resolve for good and every work by faith, by his power. Prayers for usefulness. So whenever we pray prayers with, with health at the center, safety at the center, financial resources at the center, advancement at the center, then these aren't spiritual prayers. The Lord might move in circumstantial ways that affect our health and our safety. And he might actually keep us safe for some positive gospel-centered reason in the future. But our prayer at the center is for opportunity and worthiness and, and spiritual fulfillment for his sake and usefulness to God. We do see a, an honest, open moment with Paul in Philippians 4, and he says, um, uh, Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now, now you can stop there and you just say, Paul happily received this, this torment. Happily received, what we're about to see makes him better. But here's, here's a human side of prayer for even Paul. It says, verse 8, three times, three times, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. See, our persistence in prayer many times has nothing to do with our circumstances changing. Are you willing to hear about the whole grace part? Or are, are we clenched fists and teeth grit on the circumstances changing? Because only then, that's when God has answered my prayer. No, 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 there's, there's a voice from heaven there's a voice in our spirit that's saying, there's something deeper. There's something more. It's not about our circumstances. Philippians 4, though, it says, don't be anxious in anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, right? We, we pray our heart. If it's, if it's a burden for you this morning, if, it, if it's, if it's a, something that's causing anxiety in your life, newsflash, the Lord cares about that. So we, we take the burden and we bring it before the Lord and we unload the burden before him. But this answers how we are to do that with thanksgiving. Even the, the smallest, most seemingly unspiritual thing that causes us grief, whether it should or not, the Lord cares about not the thing so much as the grief that it causes us. And so to go to him or to ignore that when we go to him isn't exactly honest prayer either, but we bring it before him in thanksgiving, supplicating to him, submitting it to him. So sometimes we go to him and we don't get what we ask for and we receive a more spiritual, deep answer, and that's good, and praise God for that. Sometimes we don't have things in the spiritual life because we don't go to him. According to James 4, Paul uh, may not have had the joy and the strength had the church not prayed it for him. The Philippians may not have received their peace if not prayed for by Paul. John's, or James' readers may not have had their wisdom had he not encouraged them to pray for wisdom. The Thessalonians may not have had their deep gratitude that Paul prayed they would have. Disciples may have been able to stand under the weight of temptation on the night of Jesus' arrest had they woken up and prayed. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. Help me out. All because we do not carry everything 
to God in prayer. Prayer has an effect. Prayer has an effect. And ultimately, the Christian always gets what he wants when he prays, even whenever he doesn't get what he wants on the surface. Because what he wants deep down is what God wants. So to know that the Lord hears me and I don't receive the answer the way I want it, I'm, I trust by faith that not only is he doing something better, but he's causing me to appreciate the better. He's causing me to desire the better because ultimately I desire his will. The ultimate prayer request for a Christian, and we will not be disappointed, is Christ-likeness. This, prom- this, this world promises nothing toward that for us. You can call blessing what you will, but blessing is Christ's likeness. Blessing is spiritual maturity. And in that, we are blessed and will be more blessed. Romans 8 puts it this way, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now, that's a prayer. We can pray. And, and do you want to pray a prayer where you're, you're going to immediately hear an answer and, and have a list of things to do to, to accomplish that prayer? Pray that prayer. And then start reading the Bible and start going, my life doesn't line up there. I seek to honor God, so I should probably do that. You're going to write down at least a million things. All right? If Christ-likeness is our goal, and I've said this before and we joke about this, but for Dave and myself and, and even our elders, that our, our jo- we have job security. Because of you, right? Because of you, we have job security if Christ-likeness is the goal. And Jesus Christ is busy in heaven because Christ-likeness is his goal in me. And that's a prayer I can pray and not ever be disappointed. That is the the most spiritual, kind of heavenly-minded prayer we could pray. God's will is spiritual. God's will is sovereign. Keep reading in verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask God, and God will give him life to those who commit sin that don't lead to death. Then, he continues, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. That's, that's obvious, right? Because we're Christians and we're still alive. There, there is a sin that doesn't lead to death. Uh, and, and all wrongdoing is sin. But there is, in fact, also a sin that, that does not lead uh, to death. And so we sin and we're not killed. Well, why is that? Well, because of God's grace for us. But there is, however, a sin that does lead to death, and that's the emphasis of the the second half of verse 16. And this seems really confusing to us, and every commentator that you read will tell you that John's audience uh, was probably very familiar with this concept. But it it can mean one of two things. It can mean that this believer, uh, that, that this is a believer committing a sin that will not result in eternal judgment, right? Follow me. But God has decided to discipline his child to the point of physical death that he might protect the church and make a point to the church. You'll notice in in this part where it says a sin leading to death, it's not called a brother. It just says one that's committing a sin that leads to death. And so we see this this sin of a believer, and it's not eternal condemnation. You can read this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 a little bit further with regard to communion. Acts 5, 1 Corinthians 5 and 11. So this was either a believer... Who, who God has chosen to punish to such an extent physically where they go to heaven sooner in order to protect the church. Or this could be God's divine judgment 
and an impending spiritual death on a sinner who is either apostate, a professing believer who had openly uh, rebelled against um, Christ, or the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, like we see in Matthew 12. So this is either, just to recap, a believer who is sinning to the point, hard is being hardened to the point where the Lord says, the way I'm going to preserve your salvation, the way I'm going to handle the punishment here is, is a very harsh physical. And so you think of Ananias and Sapphira, those who took communion without recognizing the body of Christ, like 1 Corinthians 11 says. These are harsh punishment. Paul says, this is why some of you are sick, and so, while some of you have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is a euphemism for Christians who have died. And so Paul very clearly is talking about Christians who are punished so severely physically, they fall over dead. In the case of Acts 5, the wife walks in, right? And then she falls over dead. Remember, we talked about this at the the second week of this series, and this is regarding the holiness of God, also the patience of God. The patience of God. That's a different sermon. In either case, John's point is that God has sovereignly decided in these times, and and John literally says, you probably won't want to pray for those things. Now, the elephant in the prayer room is often that we don't know God's will. So you're giving me conditions, and and the whole be a Christian one, I can read 1 John and go check, I'm a Christian. Now do I get everything I ask for? Well, the second condition is that we pray God's will. That's a little bit harder to differentiate between, though it's possible. This sovereign will of God forces us in regards to prayer to ask this question, what is the effect of my prayer? If the Lord is, in fact, sovereign, what what then is the effect of my prayer? We're in good company with those who would err on the side of prayer anyways. So we see a brother in sin. We don't make the judgment whether or not they're the ones sinning to death or they're the ones not sinning to death. We see a brother, even someone claiming to be a brother or a sister, and what do we do? Even someone far from God, admittedly, what do we do? We pray for them in hopes that God has not already sovereignly decided. We pray for them. I think of uh, Jude 1. It says, Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments of stained flesh. There's people in a fire or sinning, and they might even be sinning toward death. But we don't know that, so we're going we're gonna to err on the side of trying to rescue them, but, but we're careful because we don't want to get sucked in, but we reach in anyways, but we're, we're afraid of the fire for good reason. It's eternal condemnation by God. And as believers, we're at least sensitive. We have a healthy fear of, of, of even the, the garment stained by sin. And so we, we reach out for them anyways. No one is too far gone to be prayed for. I love how Charles Spurgeon said this. If sinners be damned, at, at, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees. Let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. What's the point here? The point is, even in the context of God's sovereignty, in this case we err on the side of prayer. And trust the Lord with the result. Even in God's sovereignty, there's a freedom to still come to him and and offer whether it's concern for a brother or personal anxiety. God is sovereign, period. We know in Isaiah 46, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, he repeats, and there is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient ancient things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Guys, we worship a sovereign God. 
It began where he wanted it to begin, and it didn't even really begin. And it's going to end exactly where he wants it to end. And yet, a paradox of the Christian life, we are commanded to pray. Samuel prayed despite knowing God's plan. If you look at uh, 1 Samuel 12, 19, I love this. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servant uh, to the Lord your God that we may not die. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart and do not turn aside after empty things and that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has passed, it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. That's God's sovereign plan that Samuel was confident Don't worry. You don't have to fear. I know how it all works out, but look how he finishes. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Okay? I know how it's going to work out, but yet I will pray. Uh, Jesus for Peter in Luke 22. Simon, uh, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. And we know this is not going to happen. Look at the legacy of Peter. Surely, within the sovereign plan of God, this was part of it. But still, verse 32, I have prayed for you that your faith not fail. And when, not if, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Despite knowing the sovereign plan of God, how it would end, he still prayed. Paul in Romans 9 and 10 prayed for the Jews in verse 10, uh, uh, chapter 10, verse 1. He said that, that he wants all of Israel to be saved just after, not even a chapter earlier, saying that God chooses who he, who he will and not all Jews will be saved. Yet, verse 1, chapter 10, I pray that all of Israel would be saved. We may consider that these didn't pray despite God's plan, but possibly because of God's plan in an attempt to, to reconcile God's sovereign will and our, our, our request. Uh, theologian said this, that you, how great it is that you, a puny man, stand here and speak to God and through God may move all the worlds. Yet, when your prayer is heard, creation will not be disturbed. Though the grandest ends be answered, providence will not be disarranged for a single moment. Not a leaf will fall earlier from the tree. Not a star will will stay its course or stop in the air. Nor a drop uh, of water trickle more slowly from the spout. All will go on the same, and yet your prayers would have affected somehow everything. This is a paradox in the spiritual life that our heart cries out to line up with God's sovereign will. God moves his people to pray. His people's prayers move God. So how are we to pray with God's sovereignty in mind? Um, You look in Daniel 3. uh, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the the burning furnace. Have you heard the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Or Radshach and Benny if you have kids, VeggieTale style. Like, Like you've heard this story that God is able to say. But what do they say? But if not... I'm going to pray a circumstantial prayer, but my values are very spiritual and they are submitted to the sovereign plan of God. Matthew 8, 1, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, 
If you will, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him and said, I will be clean. And then Jesus himself, Luke 22, verse 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then because of his prayer, we could add, there, were, there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. Even Jesus prayed a circumstantial prayer that, that he would even say his intent was very spiritual. Prayed a circumstantial prayer and then quickly submitted that prayer to the sovereignty of God. Just like John said that we pray for a brother's spiritual condition, that's a spiritual prayer. We pray not for those who he's already decided that, that our prayers would recognize his sovereignty and that while we have full access in and in, in according to God's will, that, that our prayers cannot bend and change the sovereign will of God, but yet somehow work within it. Hebrews 5 is where we'll close. And I read this, and before we read it, or even put it on the screen, if you take that down just for a second. When we read this, I want you to see in this passage not just, uh, not just the, 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 the medium of our prayer, but the model of prayer. We're going to read about Jesus and how we pray in, in Jesus' name for this reason and, and how Jesus' prayers were effective for this reason. In this passage of Hebrews, I think, is wrapped up both the, the model of prayer for us, how to live a life of prayer and how our prayers are answered, and also it proves to us that, that in Jesus' name, thy will be done. Whenever we say, uh, God, here's what I want, but, but only if it's your will. That, that's not, that's not a, a weak faith statement. Have you ever felt like that is? Do you ever feel like you're kind of taking the easy way out whenever you pray for your heart's desire, but then add, oh, let me throw that in there too, your will be done. Assuming our heart is in the right place, what that means is, Lord, here's what I'm worried, stressed, thinking, consumed about, but what I, what I truly want, Lord. And sometimes we pray this, I pray this, Lord, I want to want what you want. Right now, if I'm honest, from the surface down to the core, I want this. But I'm smart enough to know that, that I'm being sinful right now and I'm not trusting you. And what I want to want is what you want. And so would you do something in me that, that truly does want what you want? That we submit our prayers to his sovereign will, period. Even Jesus did this. And that we, we pray spiritual prayers, even circumstantial praise to a spiritual end. All right, let's read Hebrews 5 and we'll pray. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him, that's the Father, who was able to save him from death after the cross. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, yes, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who would obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So it's through Jesus we pray, and it's in Jesus we have confidence in prayer. 
So to that end, let's, uh, let's pray. And the band's going to come and we're going to kind of do what we, we do. We're going to respond by song. We, we do this just so you have a, a prayerful, kind of worshipful um, uh, period of our service to respond to, to whatever was preached or whatever you read in God's Word. And, and so we're going to do that like normal, but, but we're also going to have uh, a couple of our, our, our trusted elders and, and people who we believe could be an encouragement for you. So during this song, if you would like some prayer support, um, we're going to just a couple over here and over here. I'm not sure where they're going to stand. It doesn't matter. Uh, I just encourage you to, to consider these things. Let the truths of Scripture uh, draw your confidence in your prayer to Him down deep. That we have a confidence in prayer. That not just prayer marks a Christian, but our confidence in prayer. That if we pray spiritual things with the desires He's given us by His Spirit, and if we pray submitted prayers with His sovereign will in mind, knowing that ultimately, That is what we desire. Let's pray.